Good morning. We are reading today from Hebrews 11, 1 through 16. Uh, in your pew Bible, that is page 1007. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see the death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, what was your priority this morning when you first woke up? What was the first thing that you did when you woke up and got out of bed this morning? You know, did you roll out and just like shuffle to the coffee pot? Did you uh, flick open your phone and find the, the news app of your preference? Did you read your Bible? Did you get a glass of water? Did you drive to Dunkin' or to Starbucks or to Yum Yum Donuts and get some white lightnings and chocolate thunders? The best of us, the best among us, definitely went to Yum Yums this morning. How did you prioritize your morning? What'd you do? Well, each fall, I try to lead us into a short series uh, that helps us think about how to prioritize mission in our lives, uh, how to prioritize mission, Jesus' mission for our lives and his mission for the world. And so we're going to do that again this fall from various places in the New Testament, just a few weeks here together. I don't know if you've noticed my brand new accessory this morning. I'm wearing glasses. Um, the reality is that I don't wear glasses and I don't 
need glasses at all. I still have 20-20 vision. Um, but in today's fashion economy, glasses, frames, have become an accessory, haven't they? These are black and pink. So even if I needed glasses, I probably wouldn't go with black and pink, but I was hoping you couldn't see the pink from all the way down there this morning. Uh, listen to this article that I read recently. It says this. Research from the College of Optometrists reveals that a high percentage of people believe that glasses either make them look smarter or appear more professional and businesslike. What do you think? Did it work for me this morning? Oh, man. <laughs> Somebody had a quick no there. The article continues. So it'll come as no surprise that a massive two out of five would wear frames, whether required to or not, to get ahead at work and look fashionable at the same time. Apparently, it would not get me ahead here or look fashionable. The article goes on to quote a popular fashionista named Gemma. That's Gemma with a G, all right? She's one of those. She posits that when your frames are right, you look good and you feel good, and that equals confidence. So what's the secret to success? It's mostly in the face shape, but skin tone matters too, Gemma says. And so from Gemma, here are some hot tips for you this morning, Trinity. For oval faces, you can carry off bold styles, but always ensure your glasses are wider than the broadest part of your face. For square faces, rounder frames will soften your features. For round faces, angular, narrow frames will help lengthen your face. Thank you, Gemma. Truly, accessory frames have become a billion-dollar industry. Accessories, though, are take it or leave it, right? You could take these glasses or leave them. Apparently, to someone over here, I definitely need to leave them and not take them because you don't need them, right? You don't have to have them. I'm sure most of the people in here, the glasses that you're wearing, the frames that you're wearing, you have to have them. But our text today boasts something that is certainly not an accessory. You just have to have it if you would like to meet your maker on good terms when you breathe your last. This is not just an accessory this morning. It's an absolute necessity, and it's faith. And we're going to briefly highlight three distinct aspects of faith from this text this morning. So take a look down at verse 6, if you will, and you'll note, first of all, that the first angle of faith, faith is a necessity, not an accessory. Faith is a necessity and not an accessory. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's not like take it or leave it. It's not something we strap on on Sundays to ensure that we looked apart. Faith is an absolutely pivotal piece of your relationship with God. And now maybe this seems like so obvious to you this morning, and hopefully we can drill down a little bit to see some of the complexities behind this assertion that I'm making. But you pleasing God is an impossibility without faith. Whatever that is, according to this text, you cannot please God without it. So we better do our best to understand what God demands of us, faith-wise at least. For the accessorizers among us, you can see without your frames. I could totally see just fine without these. You can see all of your faces smiling and making fun of me for my black and pink glasses. But without faith, you will never see God, is what this text says. Accessories are themselves oriented around an outfit often. You've got the brown frames with the brown shoes, with the blue shirt and the navy blue suit or whatever. You know, you're working all these things together to look just a certain way. But faith itself should never orient itself to anything. It's the opposite. Our lives orient around our faith. 
Our faith doesn't orient around our lives. It shouldn't, at least. Our lives orient to our faith. But how many of us this morning view our faith as an accessory to our lives instead? It's something that we sort of tack on to our lives, even as we continue on with whatever priority list that we have for our lives. Have you ever thought of your gifts, whatever they may be, your income, your strengths, your weaknesses, your job, your home address, your zip code, as something given to you by God to accessorize your faith? Your faith doesn't accessorize all those things. These things are given to you to accessorize your central identity point, your faith in the risen Son of God. God has given you all of those things to accessorize your faith, to make it attractive and appealing to a watching world. So the glasses that I took off just a second ago, I don't need them. Some of you in here treat your faith kind of like that. You think of your faith as a way to accessorize your life, to make it look a little shinier, to make it look a little better, to make you appear a certain way, to feel a certain way, or to get you certain perks. It's something to put on when it's convenient or to take off when it's inconvenient. The author of Hebrews badly wants us to de-accessorize our faith and instead understand that our faith should be the functional center by which we live our lives. The faith as our functional center. And when faith becomes your center, you order your entire life around it. When faith is your center and you orient, if faith is your center, you orient your weeks around it. You orient your Sundays around it. You orient your relationships around it. You orient your finances around your faith. You orient your Netflix account around your faith. You orient your alarm clock and your work habits and your eating habits and your spending habits and your drinking habits because faith isn't an accessory. It is central because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Verse 6. That's angle number one. Let's tease that out a little bit further with angle number two. Faith produces present results by laying hold of past reality and future assurance. Faith in your life should produce present results, like today, Sunday, September 10th, 2023. It should produce results today. And how does it do that? By you grabbing hold of your past and grabbing hold of the future that God has for you in both of those, uh, I don't know, time frames. So our text today is kind of like an art gallery that you would walk through and just Notice these different portraits of these different heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11 is often called uh, the hall of faith. And each portrait tells us something about a person, and get this, I think we need to wrap our minds around this, a person from a real place in a real time. They had real life circumstances surrounding them, but they navigated their difficulties with faith in the driver's seat. They oriented their lives to faith, which is why they ended up in Scripture's hall of faith. The entire chapter crescendos into this crazy description. If you would read it with me, I'd love that. It starts down in verse 32. Uh, Follow along with me. And what shall I say? For time would fail to tell of those who, skip to verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, and they were killed with a sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Any of y'all feeling super ordinary right now? (laughs) I am feeling very ordinary in contrast to these brothers and sisters in the faith. But I don't think the author's intent here at all is to highlight these extraordinary people so much, so much as it is to draw out for us a common thread that draws all these people together, that ties all of these people together, these very ordinary people together. What does the author of Hebrews, the writer here, want us to see about these people? The author wants us to see that these people were able to experience incredible difficulty, difficulties that none of us have ever even sniffed at, probably. They were able to survive it and even thrive in it by laying hold of a past reality and reaching into a future to take hold of a hopeful assurance from God. So look at the past. Look at the past up there in verse 3. The author says, By faith we understand that the universe was, way back in the day, created by the word of God. So faith looks around and says, This is all God's. There's not any square inch that isn't God's. It's all God's. He made it all back in the day. It's his. He owns it. And the fact that God created it means that everything is his. And there isn't anything that isn't his. We're all his. It's all his. It's all Jesus's. It's like when you own a house, right? Some of us are house owners in here. You paint your house, uh, the the walls in your house, whatever color you want to paint them. You don't have to run that decision by me or anybody else because you own the house. You don't need to run... uh, God doesn't need to run any of his ideas by us because he owns the whole thing. He made it. If we want our faith to not be stagnant, if we want to bear fruit, if we want our faith to not just be an accessory, we must not forget the past reality. God made it all, and he owns it all. We are his, bought with a price. It's not just our past, though, that we must lay hold of. It's, It's the future. If we want to have a present fruitfulness right now today we need to lay a hold of the past and put uh, put our strong grip on the future as well look at verse one faith is the assurance of things hoped for so the assurance of things that haven't happened yet that's what faith is so faith is sort of like this this holy discontent faith is a holy discontent always aching and hoping for god to make things right again to make things good to make things new to make things whole. Faith is a holy discontent, aching for God to fix it all finally one day. So to be of any earthly and present good, our hearts need to be just tethered to the promises of God, which means that you need to be in this book frequently, routinely, rhythmically. These promises need to be living in us and spilling out of us. Without a hold on our glorious future, our present fruitfulness will wane. Sometimes, Mulling over your future as a Christian is your only hope for the present. Thinking about what it's going to be like when God rescues us fully and finally, right, from this place, that is the only way to stay sane in our present. I'm fond of quoting Harvey Dent around here. I'm going to quote him again this morning. Harvey Dent once addressed the Gotham media when things were very dark in the city of Gotham. And he said this, The night is darkest just before the dawn. And then he pumps some hope into the situation. He says, but make no mistake, I promise you, the dawn 
is coming. Thank you, Harvey. Harvey held out the prospect of this future change, this future hope, and he gave those people in Gotham a a reason for living this day because there's a day coming when it's all going to be fixed and that's all going to be better because the dawn is coming. Have you ever had this same kind of experience when you're sort of driving overnight? If you've ever had to drive like through the night, it can be like a trial for your soul, at least for me, trying to stay awake that whole time. It can be the dark night of your soul, just dying and fighting to hang on and stay awake like you're doing this number and you're like doing this and you're blasting the AC and you're putting the windows down and you're pumping the music as loud as you can because you're just dying, right? But, but when morning, it's just like a whisper of dawn and you can just see a little bit of light out in the horizon. Man, that is like just sipping down one of those five-hour energy drinks, isn't it? It's like this automatic boost because you can see the light of day is coming. The sunshine is coming. It sort of, at least for me, it breathes new life into my ability to be able to stay awake. And it changes your whole perspective on the bitter discomfort that you're feeling. You were feeling just a few short moments ago when you're doing this to try to stay awake. You can't see the sun yet. It's not there. But you can tell that the sun is coming because you can see evidence of its coming out on the distant horizon when it's lit up just a little bit. Your life right now, I don't know what you're up against. I don't know what you're going through. You might feel a bit like you're driving in the dark in the wee hours of the morning. You might be holding out hope right now that joy will dawn in the morning and it just keeps not dawning and it keeps being dark and you keep being sleepy and it just keeps being miserable and you don't know what to do. In those moments... Friends, can I just can I say this? Your present usefulness is not being held at bay. You can still be useful in God's kingdom in those moments. Your usefulness can be on full display as you set your hopes firmly in the assured future of your king. Though you may not see him yet, just like you don't see the sun when you see the dawn out in the distance. But evidence is all around us that he has come and that he will return again in strength, in beauty, in glory. This is exactly how all the folks in Hebrews chapter 11 hung on through such challenging trials because their faith was tethered to their future hope. They couldn't fully see it. They couldn't fully wrap their minds around it. It certainly wasn't tangible for them yet, but they held on through severe trial. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Do you think that these people here in Hebrews 11 were sustained by some kind of, I don't know what we would like to call it in here, salvation prayer that they prayed decades before? They wrote a date in the front of their Bibles, a date in the front of their Bibles, and they said, yep, I'm good. No, no, they were pursuing the Lord in their present, and they were clinging to the past reality of his creating of them and rescuing them, and they were holding on to the future of God's glorious future rescue of them as well. They were sustained by the present reality of their faith that was reaching to the future and hanging on to the past. The thing to notice about these people is not their personality traits. It's certainly not their seminary training. It wasn't their upbringing. We are not told that Abraham was especially resourceful. We're not told that Moses was like this super charismatic leader. He wasn't. He had a stutter. Or that those who suffered well were born with some kind of extra dose of valor and courage. They weren't. The only thing that made them different from others was their faith. Without faith, none of these heroes in Hebrews 11 
would have lived in the ways that they did and have impact the way that they had. But by faith, they lived with the power the world knows nothing about and gained a salvation that the world scoffs at. Because of their faith, verse 16 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a sweet, beautiful description. So this text, for the many portraits that it boasts, isn't so much about the portraits of the people that you read about here. It's more about the frames around the portraits. Each portrait is framed by faith. In fact, this phrase is used close to 20 times just in this chapter alone. By faith, by faith, by faith. How do these ordinary Christians literally flip the world upside down? Why are we reading about them thousands of years later? Because they lived by faith. Faith was in their driver's seat. Not financial ambition, not climbing a corporate ladder, faith, nearness to the Son of God. I think one of the implicit functions of this text is to demonstrate that our faith, your faith and my faith, is faith is lived out in real time, in real places, and really differently from one another, just like it was for those in Hebrews 11. Each of these portraits in Hebrews 11 tells a different story. I don't know if you noticed. Some of them are super victorious. Some of them are very tragic. Some are strange, some are violent, some are transcendent. Each of these stories uh, is packed with all different kinds of details. And this, this morning, we're kind of just breezing by these portraits together very quickly. Maybe there'll be a time to drill down a little bit more on each of them. But as we do, I, I challenge you, as we breeze by them, I challenge you to reject the idea that these were unique people in a unique time with a unique faith. It's simply not true. And I hope to tease that out for you or prove that to you in just a second here. But each portrait is rooted in real-life experiences of these people. And it's not mentioned here. You kind of have to read between the lines. But each of the people that we read about in Hebrews 11, each of them had a mom and a dad. They had hopes and dreams for their future. They had pets. They had kids. They got up for work. They came home from work. They had a favorite meal, a favorite drink, favorite restaurants, favorite parks. And yet because of their faith, their lives still speak from the grave. Ordinary people whose lives still speak. So in your ordinary life, anything like mine, super ordinary. How might God be calling you to exercise the fruitfulness of your faith right now in your life situation? God's not calling you to build an ark, but he might be calling you to build community with the members in this church. That's going to require you as we say often here, to be humbly vulnerable with one another and to be humbly uh, transparent and uh, intrusive into one another's lives. We have to be willing to go past the surface and really dig into one another's lives. How are you doing? How are you really doing? How's your soul? God may not be calling you to be sawn in half. Can I get an amen on that this morning, right? But he may be calling you to proclaim the good, renewing news of the gospel to your coworkers. Even if they shake your head, shake their head or, or give you a hard time. God may not be calling you like Abraham to leave your home and traverse the globe. He may just be calling you to exercise your faith across the street or at the gym, on your block, with your neighbors. God may never call you up to this pulpit week after week after week to open up the scriptures and share them. But he does want you to be faithful to disciple your kids day after day after day. We're just talking about ordinary one foot in front of the other faithfulness. 
So if we are to see lives transformed in Abington, if we are to see the poor finding meaningful employment and better yet, meaning in Christ, if we are to find the marginalized being loved into the light, the marginalized being loved into this space on our Sunday gatherings, at our Sunday gatherings, if we are to see addicts becoming worshipers, if we are to see thieves becoming givers, if we are to see deadbeat dads becoming engaged fathers, lusters becoming true lovers, racial discord transformed into gospel harmony, prostitutes becoming believers, if we're to see these empty spaces in the pews that you can see all around you, if we're to see them filled with people who are searching for meaning and for a reason, for existence and hope, legit broken people who are needy and they know it, if we want to fill in all of these spaces, we cannot outsource this or it will never get done. It is on us, Trinity, to exercise our faith in the very ordinary ways. If we're to see ourselves and our community transformed and renewed, we are going to need something other than just a Sunday-only kind of Christianity, something other than just like an accessory that we tack on when it's convenient. Merely going to a place on Sundays never changed anyone's neighborhood on Mondays. Does your life accessorize your faith, or is your faith just an accessory to your already prioritized life, busy life? Our faith isn't an adornment for our Sundays. It is our oxygen for our everydays. Faith grips past reality and future promises of God for present usefulness. And then finally today, angle number three of our faith, faith is all about its object, not itself. I'll untangle that in a second. But faith is all about its object and not itself. So one burden that I want to protect us from this morning is feeling the urge. Like we have to psych ourselves up with some kind of rippling biceps kind of faith, okay? In order to get kingdom work done. Hebrews 11 speaks nothing to the measure of faith these men and women had. So we learn from this that God's ability to use us has nothing to do with the quantity of faith we have. It has everything to do with the object our faith is in. Let me read that last sentence for us again so I can understand it better. So we learn from this that God's ability to use us has nothing to do with the quantity of faith we have. It has everything to do with the object our faith is in. Faith can do extraordinary things in anyone's life. If you live by faith in the God of this book, it does not matter who you are or what you have done. If your past is marked by goodness or badness, you can make an impact in God's kingdom by faith. What really matters about you is not your personality, it's not your persuasiveness, it's not your seminary training or even like a brand new belief or a really old belief in Jesus. By faith, you can be a spiritual giant like these people here in Hebrews 11. Why? Is it because of some secret sauce that's inherent to faith? Or because faith will unleash your hidden potential? No, not at all. Faith can do great things in you and through you because God, verse 6, if you look down, it can do great things in you and through you because God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith gains its power from its object, not from its size. Faith gains its power not from, it, uh, from its object, not from its size. This is why I say faith is about the object and not about faith itself. So, so we don't have to work ourselves up into some kind of frenzy. We just have to earnestly, faithfully seek the Lord, seek his face. What matters most about you is not the amount of your faith. 
but the object of your faith. Jesus, the all-powerful one. Why is this? Because the amount of your faith is dependent on you. Depending on what season you're in in life right now, what the temperature is in the room, how hungry you feel, how thirsty you feel, what you're feeling like on a particular day emotionally or physically, depending on all those variables, your faith may be bigger one day and smaller the next. But do you know what never gets bigger or smaller? The object of your faith, God himself. Look there at the end of verse 6 and check out the simple content of the faith that pleases God, the kind of faith that pleases God. It must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Pretty simple. Faith is believing that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is good news for spiritual nobodies, all right, like you and like me. For those of us who struggle to be consistently in the word, for those of us who struggle to be consistently on our knees, begging God to help, for those of us who tend to hide our light under a bushel, like that old kid's song says when we are out in the marketplace, the simplicity of our faith is a gift from God. It must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we must believe, Trinity, not only that this God exists, but that one of his core attributes is that he is a good rewarder of those who seek him. This is the kind of faith that just like turned the world completely upside down in the first century, in Hebrews 11. And this is the kind of faith that will make the renewing power of the gospel visible out there in Abington or wherever you live and work. So God's mission for our lives isn't rocket science, and it isn't complicated. It is simple faithfulness. It's just a life oriented around these central truths. God is real, God is good, and God rewards. Let me say that again for us. I think we can put it on screen for us, if you don't mind. God's mission for our lives isn't rocket science, and it isn't complicated. It's simple faithfulness. This is all that you're called to do in life, okay? Just a life oriented around these truths. God is real. God is good. God rewards. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Aren't we just like at least uh, the least little bit intrigued by this reward from the God of the universe? Doesn't it just like wet your whistle a little bit? Wet your appetite? I'm intrigued by it, and I want to find out what it means. I want to experience it. I want to get all the way caught up in whatever this reward is that God offers to those of us who seek him by faith. God rewards seekers, Trinity, so seek. If you've gotten lost in other priorities in recent weeks or months, reprioritize the kingdom priorities this week and seek. And don't obsess over whether or not your faith is strong enough Jesus had strong faith in your place. So when God looks at your faith, he doesn't see the weak, uh, the weak puny faith muscles that you actually have. He sees Jesus' strong faith muscles in your place. Rest in that. And God rewards you for your faith, for his faith and not yours. Revel in the fact that the God your faith is pointed at, the God your faith is pointed at, is strong. It does not matter how ordinary or extraordinary your gifts or your faith are. It doesn't matter because faith is about the object and not about itself. In fact, in one of these faith portraits, we find Abraham's initial deposit of faith in God. You can see that starting in verse 8. 
But if you're to like just pause there in verse 8 and then go all the way back to uh, the book of Genesis and read what happens next, right after what happens in verse 8, uh, you might in some kind of weird, sadistic way find some encouragement because Abraham falls flat on his faith. And yet we find Abraham in the hall of faith. Uh, I want you to feel uh, that you have sort of a compatriot here in Abraham. And I want you to know that if God can use a joker like Abraham to transform the world, he can use a joker like you and me too. Be encouraged by that, all of you jokers. Um, If you're not familiar with the story of Abraham, I won't rehash it for you. But to sum it all up, Abraham is like fearfully lying to save his own hide. And in, in so doing, he actually puts his wife at significant risk probably for rape and maybe even death. And he, he lacked the courage in those moments and the faith in God's protection to speak the truth. And yet, in an ironic twist, Hebrews 11 holds him up as an example of faith. How is that? The point is this. It's not about the quality of your faith. It is about the object, the immovable object of your faith. You can rest in that this morning. So when you think about your life of faith, Let the streams of your thoughts flood to the object of your faith, not the amount or the performance or the quality of your faith, but to the object of your faith. Well, this leads us to our our big idea this morning. It's kind of like something portable that we can hopefully take with us. When God's people, that's us, root their faith in God's promises, past promises and future promises, they will live with God's priorities. When God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. Noah built a boat 500 miles away from the nearest ocean, a thousand times too big for his family, and then he starts filling it with animals. Are you with me here? Like, that is absurd when you think about the story of Noah. But God's people root their faith in God's promises. Those who do will live with God's priorities, no matter how foolish and absurd it seems on the surface. Abraham left his home. You can see it there in verse 8. Not knowing where he was even going, he just left packed his bags, and started walking. He left all of it behind, not for a better job, not for a beach house, not to be closer to family. He left by faith because God told him to. That is absurd. But when God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. It's a beautiful picture of God using simple, faithful, but hard obedience to reap untold amounts of fruit through very ordinary people like them, and like us. What story will your life tell? I don't know. I don't know what mine will tell or yours, but I, I hope that ours will tell a story of life by faith, where faith is in the driver's seat of everything. A life that even speaks from the grave at some level, like these people do in Hebrews 11. You know, if you, you know, we just got all of, uh, all of your kids school books and stuff over the course of this last week. If you flip through your kids' history books sometime this week, you won't find any of these heroes of the faith, though, from Hebrews 11, will you? And why is that? Because there is one thing that faith won't do for you. Faith will not give you worldly fame and fortune. If that is what your priority structure is bent toward, faith is not going to help. Most of these heroes of the faith were nobodies in the world's eyes. But by faith... They are heirs with the reigning king of the universe. Brothers of Christ 
and sons of God, sisters of Christ and daughters of God. That is their inheritance. It's beautiful. Their faith didn't commend them to the world. For most of them, their faith earned them the world's contempt. Many of them were killed because of their faith. But look at verse 2. For by it, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. They got something better. What commendation was that? By faith, they were commended by the creator of the universe himself. Face-to-face commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. It does not get any better than being commended by your creator. But sometimes we get this twisted, don't we? We are bent towards preferring the world's commendation over God's. We want them to think well of us, but untwist this morning, Trinity. God's commendation is all that matters in the end. So live by faith, with faith in your driver's seat. Don't make fortune your life's goal. Make faith your life's goal. And just watch what happens in this life and then in the next. God rewards those who diligently seek him. It is by faith then that you and me too can be commended by God. It is by faith in another. These people aren't the heroes of Hebrews 11. The people there aren't the heroes. Jesus is the hero because Jesus is the object of their faith. Jesus is all of our heroes. He gives us life. He gives us his death and his resurrection to have faith in. His cross fuels hope for today and hope for tomorrow into your future. Because of his cross, you can not only be forgiven and received by God, but you can actually be pleasing to God in your life. So what is it then that really matters in your life? At the end of the day, strip it down to the studs. What is the most meaningful thing in your life, the structure that holds your life up? Hebrews 11 says that what matters most about you is the object of your faith. If you want to have an impact on the world around you for Jesus, be faithful. One foot in front of the other kind of faithfulness. If you want your kids to remember you for anything, let it be that you are faithful. Let them see you in the word. Let them see you on your knees. Let them see you in this place, engaging with your Lord. Help them see that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do your morning routines reflect that the infinite value of the object, the infinite value of the object of your faith? Do our spending habits reflect the infinite value of the object of our faith? Do your scrolling habits reflect the infinite value of the object of your faith? Does your service to this church in one of the many ways that you can serve? Are you a member here and serving and giving your life to the lifeblood of this church? I hope so. If you need ideas about places you can serve, I've got plenty of them. Better yet, Janelle and Amanda have lots of ideas for how you could serve in this church right underneath us on Sunday mornings. Since it is true that without faith it is impossible to please God, nothing is more important than flexing your puny faith muscles, okay? As weak as they are, because though your faith is weak, the object of your faith is strong, and he will not let you down. And when the object of our faith is strong, who can stand against us? No one. When God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. Uh, 
Lou Protnicki is going to come up and pray our prayer of application for us this morning. And then after that, uh, if you're serving communion, you can come up and we'll dive into that portion of our gathering this morning. Father, we live in a world that is, we are bombarded by our senses, what we can touch and feel and see and count. But you have reminded us, O oh Lord, that the most real things are the things that we cannot see, that we need to take by faith. Father, we pray that as we have heard your word, you would instill in our wills, minds, hearts, and desires the goal of living by faith. Faith, not only in your promises, but in your character, who you are. That when we go through trials, disappointments, and losses, and even pain, that you are the God who is good, and sovereign, and wise, and loving. And so we pray that you would help us to collapse upon you and to journey day by day in a life of faith that gives you glory and that will be rewarded one day when you take us home, when you come back for us and you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.